0: You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Today, what I wanna do in the 25 minutes that I have is to share with you about building trust. Building trust as a Christian in particular, in the arena, right? So for me, that would be the secular scientific arena. Um, Maybe some of you are scientists as well and have aspirations to enter that arena. Uh, But I hope that you find principles in what I say that are applicable to whatever your chosen arena is. But before I get to all of that, I think it's only fair, especially in a message about building trust, that I share with you a little bit about me, about who I am, and hopefully build some trust in that process. I'm a Christian. I'm also a scientist. I have a Hindu background, Indian ancestry, Canadian birth, and American citizenship. So that's obviously a lot to unpack and uh, I'm not gonna really get to most of that. But a good place to start and what I thought you might be interested in is my name. So my name, Praveen Sethupati, It's of Sanskrit origin, Sanskrit, an ancient language from India. Praveen means skillful, and Setupati means lord of the bridge. And the bridge refers to the former chain of limestone shoals that connected the southern tip of India uh, to the northern coast of Sri Lanka. And according to ancient Hindu epic, uh, the Ramayana, the bridge was constructed by Lord Rama and his army. Needless to say, my name is really steeped in ancient Indian tradition and Hindu lore. My Indian heritage is a part of who I am. I'm very proud of it. I was raised as a Hindu for 18 years of my life. I appreciated Hinduism as a rich culture to enjoy, but it wasn't until my college years that I was really challenged to think about what Hinduism was and what it meant to me personally. I had gone through the motions of various aspects of Hinduism but I hadn't really stopped to think about what it meant as a belief system to live by. Over time, I learned more about Hinduism. I decided to dedicate myself uh, during my freshman year of college to studying the Hindu scriptures and to learning more about this tradition that I had been steeped in for almost two decades. The spiritual sensitivity that I was gaining as I read the Hindu scriptures called me in to want to learn about other faith traditions that were making truth claims themselves, Buddhism, Islam, and so I studied those and eventually came to Christianity as well. When I have more time, I hope to share with you why Christianity was the last one that I decided to check out, why I came to it somewhat kicking and screaming, But I came to it nonetheless. And I'm often asked this question, well, what was it in this sort of comparative religion course that you put out for yourself? What was it that stood out in Christianity? And as cliche as it may sound, it was meeting the person of Jesus. He's the supposed hero of the story, right? But he appears naked, disfigured, barely recognizable what seemed to me a broken man on the cross. It wasn't the superhero Krishna from Hinduism that I had so enjoyed as a child. If you challenged Krishna, I'd become 60 feet tall and throw a weapon at you. Or even the valiant uh, warrior prophet Muhammad from Islam that I learned about later. But one of the first things that I would learn is that in the cross, Jesus was turning upside down my notions of power. He wasn't on the cross because he was powerless to stop it or to save himself as it first appeared to me. He was on the cross because that's how far he'd go to save others. You and I often exercise power by exerting our perceived authority on others. Jesus exercised power by laying his life down. You and I often think of power as being driven by some kind of physical force. Jesus' power was driven by sacrifice. Honestly, I'd never seen or read anything like this in religious literature. It was truly radical to me. It's something, as Christians, we might take for granted. But I encourage you to revisit that fundamental truth of the Christian faith that is truly and wonderfully radical. It didn't make me a Christian immediately. But I have to tell you, there was an openness and a rawness and an honesty to Jesus that it it engendered trust. It made me want to come back to him and learn more. When I started putting my trust in Jesus and finding my identity in him, it was a very confusing time for my family. Was I rejecting my Indian culture, my brownness? Would I change my name? Would I suddenly become Peter or Paul? You know, honestly, their their confusion wasn't unfounded. They had seen many do exactly that. But Christ did not come to change names or to move people from one culture to another. He came to renew hearts and minds and to bring life where there was death. So it was my joy at that time to share with my family, no, I would remain, Praveen Setupati, that Christ was laying a claim on my heart, not on my name, I explained that becoming Christian had nothing to do with rejecting my Indian heritage or being called by a different name. It was about embracing God's interwoven presence in the history of humankind, Christ's love and sacrifice for us and our desperate need for him. Christ was brewing within me a renewed sense of purpose to be what Scripture calls an agent of healing or a minister of reconciliation, to build trust. I've experienced firsthand a very critical need for trust building in the secular scientific arena. The pandemic has made it, I think, painfully evident how much mistrust there is between some communities of faith and some secular scientists. Scientists, particularly in disciplines in the life sciences, often perceive the evangelical Christian community to be openly hostile to their profession and priorities. Likewise, even though some prominent surveys suggest that the majority of evangelicals have a friendly view toward science per se, there is a tremendous distrust of scientists whom they often perceive as promoting an atheistic agenda or at least one that marginalizes their faith and priorities. Social scientists like Elaine Howard Eklund at Rice University, who also happens to be a devout Christian, has done excellent work to show that the perceptions of one another are caricatures. They reflect perhaps what the loudest voices are saying, but not really what everyone is thinking. Nonetheless, perceptions matter, right? Because when trust is broken, it's really difficult to mend it. In the book, Religion Versus Science, What Religious People Really Think, Dr. Eklund reports that over 30% of self-identified evangelicals would first consult a pastor about a question that they have on science. There's nothing wrong with the pastor, but what makes this challenging is that many of those same pastors report feeling under-equipped to answer these questions on science, but they feel a pressure to come up with an answer anyway. Among all other faith traditions, agnostics, atheists included, the average was less than 10%. So there's something different going on in the evangelical Christian community. And we've seen this play out in a really rough kind of way in the pandemic response in our nation. Among the many problems this distrust of scientists creates is a completely unnecessary but, I think, serious crisis of faith for many of our youth. And that's really motivating for me. As a scientist and as a Christian, I have a unique opportunity, I think, to bridge this chasm. And those of you who are pursuing that calling, uh, I invite you uh, to see this as an opportunity. But where do I start? Where do we start? How do I serve as a minister of reconciliation in the secular scientific workplace? There's a lot to say on this subject, but in the interest of time, I'd like to share three reflections. And I'm going to lean on scripture, and I think it'll help lay a strong foundation, at least, as you continue to wrestle with this. My focus will be on faith and science, as that's my arena. But again, I hope you find some principles in here that are relevant for you as well. So the first reflection is on the Bible itself. Some of the distrust between people of faith, and the scientific community can be traced back to a somewhat tortured history of how the Bible has been misused or even abused to create an enmity with science unnecessarily. As followers of Christ, we have a high view of scripture. To me, having a high view means that we strive to understand and respect what the Bible is and what it isn't. My view, and one shared by many theologians and Christian thinkers over the centuries, is that the Bible's primary objective is not to describe the mathematical language or the physical laws or the chemical makeup of the world. Its goal is entirely different, to speak of God's interwoven presence in the history of mankind, his love for us, our need for him, eternity, sin, redemption, restoration, And the Bible communicates these things in diverse ways. Prose, poetry, song, parables, polemics, rhetoric, observational language, whatever way will help us best understand who God is, what he's done for us, and why. Treating the Bible as a scientific text, it's a bit like a robot reading Romeo and Juliet. I feel like the true meaning and the effect of it is going to be missed. If we don't prayerfully and respectfully strive to understand the richness of the language and the breadth and depth of the intended meaning, then I think we'll be in danger of not only limiting the power of God's word in our lives, but maybe even committing injustice in the name of God. I want you to briefly consider the case of the church's reaction to Galileo's supporting evidence that the sun and not the earth— is at the center of our solar system. He was branded a heretic for his scientific views in part because they were perceived to be in conflict with specific scripture verses that we today would clearly say are intended to be poetic and observational. So we have to be humble enough to ask ourselves whether we might be making any similar mistakes today. History does have a tendency to rhyme, and it behooves us to express some humility as we approach Scripture? Are we making the Bible say things that it doesn't intend to, especially in areas of science? These kinds of mistakes, they they not only dishonor the Word of God, but they might sow seeds of distrust with others that grow into entangling weeds. And uh, over time, they become really difficult to root out. So my first exhortation is, let's be honest. Let's be honest about the mistakes we've made as the church in the past when it comes to science. We can't change the past, but we can forge a different path going forward, one that is willing to listen, one that's willing to be prayerful as we study Scripture. And I think that's going to be really critical to building trust over the long run. Second reflection. This is about our motivations for for even entering our chosen vocational arenas. And again, mine would be the scientific arena. I've found that some of the distrust that scientists have cultivated toward people of faith, particularly evangelical Christians, is rooted in the idea that Christians only care about promoting their faith. And whatever vocation they choose is simply a vehicle for that goal. And I'm sad to say that this fear or this criticism, if you will, is not entirely unfounded. At times, I have heard science being promoted in Christian communities, not necessarily for its own sake, but rather because it offers a platform to use for addressing the culture. I myself was encouraged when I was a college student by some of my early spiritual mentors to consider graduate school, not necessarily because it was a passion, not necessarily because it was an opportunity to worship through science, but because I would gain a larger voice in society. Why really should I have pursued the scientific enterprise? To answer this, I actually want to turn to a psalm, Psalm 104, and it may not even seem relevant at first, but bear with me. Most of the verses about creation in Psalm 104, they seem to emphasize just the purpose of that those created entities serve, right? So the water is there to quench the thirst of the wild donkeys. The grass is there to be food for the cattle. The trees are for the birds to uh, make their nests. And the mountains are for the wild goats to make a home and so on. But one day when I was reading this Psalm, one verse jumped out at me is really different from the rest. This is verse 26. It says that the Leviathan was created simply so it could play. It was really different to me. It was sort of remarkable, because it reminded me that while part of God's wisdom in creation is obviously order and purpose, another part is simply for the fun and the pleasure of it. It was just so the Leviathan could play. He takes delight in his Leviathan, which he formed apparently just so it could take delight in the oceans. I think therein lies a core truth of the Christian faith, that at the heart of creation is God's joy. God has been delighting in what he has made from the very beginning. And I believe we humans are that unique slice of creation that gets to delight in creation right alongside our creator. Talk about human uniqueness or distinctiveness. I think that's where it's found. The deep pleasure I derive from doing science is often shared by my fellow scientists, whether they're Christians or not, whether they know God or not. So my second exhortation is, find pleasure in what you do. So much of the world doesn't have that luxury, but you and I do. Let's take advantage of that. Let's find pleasure in what we do. Experiencing in community the pleasure of shared work I think it helps build trust with one another. The third reflection is about our credibility as scientists, or whatever you choose to be. Another common misconception fueled by bad examples in the past and present is that Christians who are scientists are probably quacks. That is, they're often not credible, perhaps, or maybe they're not rigorous scientists. Maybe they're at the bench and waiting for the Holy Spirit to move them. And so their opinions and ideas on other matters are not to be taken seriously. In my opinion, the most powerful way to change these kinds of misconceptions is by living out examples to the contrary. It says in Luke that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, not only with God, but also with fellow man. That blows me away. Why is it important that the God of all creation— the maker and sustainer of all things, grow in reputation among mere humans. Because he knew that it would be important to establish credibility before anybody would listen. It would be critical to demonstrate his authority before anyone would take him seriously. If Jesus himself played the long game, waited patiently until his reputation grew among people, How much more does this apply to us? There's no quick fix sometimes. You gotta play the long game. So my third exhortation is pursue excellence. It doesn't matter what the task is, however small, however large, pursue excellence. Perform at your best. Show that you are dedicated to work at the highest level. This will honor God for sure, but also the credibility you gain in the arena will go a long way in building trust, maybe even eventually on matters of faith. There are a lot of challenges. All this sounds good, right? You'd be right to express some skepticism and say, come on, can we really put these kinds of insights into practice? I'm gonna share two obstacles that I've experienced uh, as I end here in putting these into practice. The first is this feeling that progress is really slow. We're working really hard to try to build trust. Sometimes it just does not feel like we are moving the needle. And that can be really frustrating. But what we have to remember is that the ministry of reconciliation was never presented to us by God as a sprint. It's a marathon. This is exactly how we see it in scripture as well. Marathons require a kind of fortitude It's built by patience and long-suffering and perseverance, fruits of the Holy Spirit. The perceived chasm between science and faith has been growing for a long, long time, so we can expect that work to bridge the chasm will also take time. The second obstacle is the challenge as Christians of responding to what we might perceive as unfair criticism. No matter what we do or how we do it, we may still be subject to ridicule or dismissal or harsh words. Fighting back, even if we're right, usually only serves to divide further, not bridge. It's worth remembering that our ultimate purpose as humans is to reflect the character of God. If we abandon this, nothing else really matters anyway. As Christians, our calling is not to fight for our rights— But to be willing to lay them down for a greater cause. Proverbs 19.11, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. When we take this proverb to heart and we actually try to live it out, don't get me wrong, it's it's hard. (laughs) There are a lot of times I don't do it well. So please understand me, this isn't a judgment but it is a a reminder of the invitation that God presents before us. When we take this proverb to heart, we demonstrate that we're not thrown off our game when others don't accept us, because we know in our hearts we're always accepted by God. And what more could we possibly ask for? So with this in mind, we respond to ridicule with gentleness or unfair criticism with an invitation to talk over lunch. To be clear, I'm no Pollyanna. I'm not saying that this is going to turn others' hearts immediately and then we're going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. But I do believe, and I've seen this happen in my own career, over time, we demonstrate a commitment to elevate the conversation and stay focused on our calling to heal and bridge, whether it be science and faith or any other kind of brokenness around us that you see. Thank you very much.